You're listening to Joe Dalton on Dublin South FM, crossing the Rubicon. As you know, every Tuesday we try to bring you the best guests, people that would inspire us, people that will make us think. And this week, we're going to ask the question, what is enough? But before we go there, I just want to remind you, the last 200 years has given us so much. It has given us the steam engine, given us electricity. It has given us the plane, cars and even medical miracles. Well before that, life was a living hell, barbaric. But the question I asked, what is enough? That we're going to discuss today with my guest, Daniel Metalon. Daniel, welcome to Dublin South FM. You're a man on a mission. You're a man who wants to change lives. You're a man that has a purpose. So tell me, not me, tell the audience, what's your purpose? It's simply to stimulate and express and provoke a conversation about how the world can work for 100% of humanity, if that's possible. And if that is even a worthy aspiration from a collaborative standpoint, and even an individual standpoint, to ask the possibility. This is really the seed of awareness that we always say is part of consciousness. It's another angle of looking at that. And you began to point to in your introduction of recognizing the enormous strides of standard of living we've made, and yet we have all of these inequities and scarcities to address today. And let's also be super clear literally threats to the existence of humanity to address. I've always said on many occasions that there is not a shortage of anything in this world. There's only just a distribution problem. And we, we know this from history has taught us. What's your angle on changing humanity? Would that be... Well, it's funny that you say that because we were having a conversation, me and a few members of my team this morning, and we were talking about the fact that if bobbing for apples or doing hula hoops would get collaboration in the world, we would do that. Because that's really what our threat from where we sit, from our vantage point, the real threat is not the threats that are facing us, but our inability to address those threats because of our lack of ability to cooperate and collaborate. And if that's true, or at least worth exploring, then you would say that, well, how else would you create new agreement and collaboration other than by conversation? Now, clearly would have to be some kind of conversation is more qualitatively better than others towards this pursuit. But part of it is just even having the pursuit of agreement, not compromise, not, you know, getting you to agree with my opinion, <laughs> or you seeing my facts versus your facts. And if you had mine, you'd have my conclusions, everything that tribalism is based on, which is really an argument about history for the most part, really, whereas our solutions are in the future. So the purpose of our conversation is to get us to a second question. We open our conversation, of course, with the question of, is there enough, which people will fill in in their own unique ways. But it's to get to the question of what are we going to do about it? I would argue that in society, whether it's civil society or institutional uh, organizations, both inside government, outside, for-profit, non-profit, we spend, let's say, an undue amount of time describing the problem and therefore who's at fault for it, and maybe a little bit on what are we actually going to do about it, which is a harder question why we avoid it, because we don't tolerate ambiguity very well. We don't tolerate it the way writers in a writer's room when they're trying to come up with that scene that's going to take them from act one to act two and throw 16 weird ideas at the table before they figure it out. We as humans don't replicate that very well. 
But is that the problem? Because people now have got to the stage that they agree with everybody. It's nice to agree where no one is questioning anything anymore. One, because they, they feel they don't have enough information. Their argument or debate towards it will be valid. And the other one is people just kind of live in their own little bubble and going, well, it's not affected me. I have everything I'm in my little pod. Let someone else worry about it. Is that what you see around the planet, that people don't question things very much? Because from where I sit, we're having more questioning going on in humanity than we've ever had, including you and I having this conversation and the ability to use pretty sophisticated tools to do this podcast compared to 20 years ago, let's say, right? I would think that the agency that we have to ask questions has never been greater on an on mass basis. So we might be seeing different aspects there. Now, I've always believed, well, more so in the last couple of years, that people will believe that they're doing something by making a comment on Twitter or writing something in comments on Facebook or LinkedIn and they have expressed it and then their gratification in their mind is done where they haven't done anything. And the real way that we can change things if we speak to our government or speak to people that we need to speak to, and that's like writing letters. I spent half my life writing letters to the government and to um, politicians on stuff that I would disagree with, but there's not enough people doing it. So yes, I do believe that the, the majority of people are going, well, it's not affecting me. The burning building, it's not affecting me. So someone else will look after it. So I've already raised the fact that we're intending to have a second question in our conversation called, what are we going to do about it? It, in that sentence, referring to whatever we agree that there's not enough of. To talk about distribution or other sorts of solutions, whatever we want. But there's another question that's sitting underneath this conversation. I'm reporting this to you from social research in 22 countries, thousands of hours at this point. And this lingering underneath question when we ask the conversation of is there enough and where it leads to is people reporting to us that they're thinking, am I enough? Followed closely by are we enough? I think that you as the letter writer to the editor, to the government, to everything else, I know that they look at that letter with more representation than the people who didn't bother writing in. Particularly if it's something favorable, you're even more of a, an, a minority than if it's a complaint. So they have all that data uh, over 50 years or more to, to know that. So they do pay attention to the people who bother to write in. And I would say that that also represents people who agree with you, have done the questioning you've done, but they haven't bothered to take the next step of demonstrating. Because it's not enough to create transformation merely by awareness. I have great spiritual gurus of awareness. You had a great one on the week before, Arnaud, who, who, who really, people should listen to that a second time to see how he talks about being aware of the thing that's going on and not being in it and embracing it. It's beautiful material. What comes complementary to that is the demonstration, the action. You're somebody who took action. So when we take the, is there enough question and apply it to a word like courage, I would say there's not enough courage. I would say there's not enough leadership. And I don't mean leadership in government. I mean leadership in humanity. There's not enough of that, 
right? And so this is what has evolved about our conversation is where you ask, is there enough? There's a not enough list. There's an enough list. It's as unique to every person who answers it as a fingerprint. But as a group, when we begin to apply, is there enough to another value? We begin to discover some things. And the one that I've had focus on this particular month and next month, it might be a different word is looking at the role of the scarcity of truth. So the conversations I'm moderating around this, it's almost like a, a little conversational bubble, so to speak, is, is there enough truth? And what is truth, right? Which causes us to have to really examine that both belief and fact actually matter. You can't say to people, oh, well, you're idiots because you don't know the facts and expect you'll ever get collaboration out of that. You'll never will, right? or enough to say never, you know, that it's like the 99 percentile. Um, what, what does seem to work to create collaboration amongst people who don't agree so they can actually get some things done, and I mean at every level of society, not just in government, but right down to relationships and your own personal path to purpose and power. Um, and boy, does this really matter in business a lot, <laughs> since you have a business audience as well, um, is to pose the question of the lens of is there enough, which is about possibility and put it at something specific as a laser focus. And from that point, I would say definitely there's not enough courage and there's not enough truth. And we need to do something about that. Talk about consciousness or spirituality. And I, I have my own feeling about that and I'll express that here today. We have believed that spirituality and consciousness is all about love, hugs and kisses, but it's not. It's about truth and courage. And I think about people being truly authentic is about them having the two of them, but also have people got to the stage where they've been given so much that they don't know what they need anymore. So it's give everyone what they want. So people don't know what they need. So you have just honed in on, I think, the most instrumental understanding of anything we've discovered, which is the recognition that. Most of the problems we have today in the modern world, I, I understand not everybody's in this boat, but most of the problems we have is too much information, not too little. And therefore, and that's not going to, that problem's not going to go away. There'll be more and more information next year, right? By comparison, right? So that problem will always get worse of what it is if you think that's a, a problem. So now we have to say, well, isn't human attention a scarcity? Isn't that a real scarcity? Like if you if you want to talk about elemental scarcity, human attention is truly a scarcity. So the question now becomes, uh, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to create attention for the, for the things that, when we say the right things, the things that we can somewhat objectively say make life better, right? People not being in poverty makes life better. People having some less income inequality than we have today makes life better. Um, by the way, you know, that's a complex conversation because as somebody said in a piece of programming, I, I just uh, imbibed in last uh, week said, would I, would I rather live as, as royalty in the 1500s and that standard of living or in a one bedroom apartment today in a modern city? <laughs> I, you know, and it's hands down, it's the one bedroom apartment uh, than being the king in 1500s. So I think these are, are, um, are questions that seem so big for us. The, the am I enough part comes in very rapidly. I think a lot of people who don't write in letters the way that you do is because they don't think that it makes a difference, that their life can make that kind of difference. And every person listening to me 
right now, if they're really going to be humble and examine their life, they probably realize that they have much more agency than they've given themselves credit for, particularly when they look at their historic self, right? Where I was worried about what this one thought and that one, you know, and so on and so forth. Because when you ask, is there enough courage and is there enough truth? Those things involve risk, right? So if we want to have more courage and more truth in the world, people like you and I, and people perhaps listening to this conversation, well, how would you create more courage and more truth would be to create more safety for people to express it. <laughs> like it doesn't seem hard when you look at it in this elemental way. And all it requires is beginning a conversation where agreement itself, not just this or that agreement, but agreement as a tendency, a pursuit of conversation does something that we really need replaced. It replaces war. A lot of people, and I would say the majority of people, would know there is something wrong in humanity. But they are happy to live the lie because it's not going to affect them in the comforts that they have, even if it's in their one-bedroom apartment. Because nobody wants to lose what they have. So even though the world is changing in whatever way, everyone is hanging on to what they've got and they don't want to let it go. And there would be the comeback question for anybody ask, is everyone or could we agree that some are and some are not? You're not. You're not. I'm not. I said the majority. And if you look at humanity, you could call it herd mentality of the majority. And it's always the small amount that change something. If you look at the world, the economy, look at the dollar, look at the wars, the people are just kind of kind of going, I'm just keeping my head down and I'm hanging on that I'm holding on to the comforts that I have so I don't lose them. And I think that's the one thing that people are fearful of. And that's why they're happy to live that life. I would say what you just described is a very unhappy compromise, because I think that type of mindset is one that's in despair and has given up. Yes, I would agree. I would and, agree. I, and I'm not sure... We would agree, and it's okay that we don't. This is part of finding agreement is sorting what we do and what we don't. I'm not sure we would agree on the percentage that falls into each category. And by the way, for the next time you talk about consciousness, I think consciousness is as simple, and I'm deliberately simple on this, and I know it doesn't cover everything, but it's workable for me. I look at consciousness as categorization. You want to tell me about whether a man is optimistic or pessimistic, whether he's a doer or a watcher, whether he's a racist or not? I can pretty much boil it down to categorization, right? Well, I, I think consciousness is actually goes, goes to once you know what true consciousness, consciousness is, you can't explain it. We'll leave that for, for another time. And I, I am, as I'll repeat, deliberately simplistic for purposes of utility. I mean, I'm somebody who took the expression of the world game, which is to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest time possible through spontaneous collaboration without ecological offense or disadvantage to anyone. And Buckminster Fuller chose his words super carefully. Um, and I just boiled it down to, is there enough? And put it in a question and invited people to be responsible for that. So that does not, I'm more like a doorway to Buckminster Fuller than, than him in that sense, of course. So I look at this consciousness thing pretty much 
that we can do a lot of workability about understanding someone else's consciousness, a pathway, like, like a baby version of psychology in a way, of looking at people by their categorization. And the biggest categorization is in their identity. And their identity is made up of two things, their history and their choices. And that's true of a nation, a company, um, a culture, religion, a relationship. We are our history and our choices. And from this standpoint, I ask myself, well, let's say I agreed with you that the majority of people have opted out. Well, I, I'm, I'm somewhat paraphrasing you to put that term there too. But let's say I, I agreed with you that it's like 70%. Well, I've got a working 30%. You only need 10 or 15% to create a real movement in humanity, according to a lot of social research uh, on that. Um, so 30% is a pretty big number to work from. And I would figure out what can I do to identify and replicate the behavior of the 30%? And I would say, whether we agree it's 30, 70 in your term or 70, 30 in my term of, of who's actively working or whatever, we can say, what's working? We know questions work. You and I can agree on that, right? Which question we're asking at any given time has a lot to do with which problem we're solving. Like when we ask about social impact investment, we put a number on it. We say the world is missing three and a half trillion in deficit. How do we come up with that? Much more specific than is there enough, <laughs> right? Um, and so, and in a relationship, if it's all about you know families that are clashing, right? It's how do we establish our identity so our families don't harm us or whatever it is. So the question matters so much um, in terms of getting an optimal answer for making life work, just work, just to function better than it does now. And I think that at the end of the day, if we have a culture of agreement, we're much more able to solve the specific areas that we see need to be addressed. Right now, my, my proposition to you and to your audience is if we don't proactively make agreement of value, we automatically drift into conflict by our habitual war patterns of 70,000 years we have inherited. That's our proposition. Okay. So really looking at values. Yes. And then measurement. Yes, exactly in that order. So that like, if you take uh, we've tested this, by the way, done a lot of work on the subject of abortion and bringing people together who believe very different policy ideas about what should be done about abortion, right? Couldn't get more emotional than that. And uh, we've been able to identify people of different policy positions who can both agree on the value of human life and then disagree on whether the mother's exercise of choice is more of a life value or the unborn child, let's say, whichever side of that that you're on, right? Because it's a very different argument from people who first agreed that they both love human life, but in different ways, than just going into that argument where you're demonizing the other guy because he doesn't love life as much as you do. If you don't clarify those values, you're going to assume different values that might not be different. And this is a very tough stuff to, to, to reorganize in your mind. Like, to start with sameness with each other before we go to difference. Like we always say compare and contrast is how the brain works, but in language and conversation with identity, particularly on the line, we start with contrast first and maybe we get to compare if we're lucky. Daniel, we could, we could be going backwards and forwards all night on different ideas. I'd like to ask you the question, what does a starting point look like and what is the, 
visualized end result that you're hoping to get? I do want people to consider what enough is to transcend the conversation of scarcity and abundance like it's a lottery wheel. I think we're at that point now. We couldn't have done this 100 years ago of really asking what is enough. And and when people do that on an individual basis, they can do this for themselves, by the way, with a little help from us on a survey we have on our website, isthereenough.org. But just listening to my voice now, if they were just to ask another person, you know, friend, family, or stranger, do you think there's enough? Most people will go enough what? Thinking you have something to add to that. And you ask them, well, you tell me what, the, what is there not enough of? And I promise you, whatever they answer after that is their values, their highest values. And if you can begin to understand that, you can begin to at least, I wouldn't say build more emotional compassion uh, that might be too too big a leap from that, but certainly develop some cognitive compassion, some cognitive understanding of how people form their ideas as opposed to their idiots because they don't believe what I do, which is the normal thing, right? Because, of course, if you'd read what I read and you studied what I studied, you would know the truth. You know, this does not work very well for us. If you ask someone who's living on the streets what is enough, and you ask someone who is fields apart from that person on the street, what is enough? Their interpretations will be totally different, which you said their values. We have all the different people's ideas of going, what is enough? And then you go, well, how do we move on from this? What, what, is the, what are the steps and, and where, where do we want to go? Where, where's, where's this all going? So there's a there's a 1.0 and a 2.0 of this. Um, in the 1.0, in just asking the deliberately ambiguous for neuroplastic positive values, asking this enoughness question starts to open up some thinking and questioning of values that we've discovered people find in a very enlightening way, no matter what their perspective is. And we also come to the conclusion of these social researchers we've accidentally become of recognizing that everybody answers this question as uniquely as a fingerprint. And we've also found from people who've been having the conversation with us for a few years now, when they ask the question at different times, they get different answers. So it's a very situational and conditional type of question. Is there enough? That's the 1.0. The 2.0 is to take that conversation, is there enough, and apply it to something like water. Is there enough water? And so on Clubhouse recently, and there's a recording on our website of this, it's quite a remarkable event, kind of like a live podcast. And we brought some experts together that had real solutions for bringing water to people in the world that don't have it. And for all of us to have enough water from atmospheric water generation, which doesn't have to touch our groundwater. And for those of you business people out there wanting to know my, my business focus as a social impact producer, we've mapped out it would take about a trillion dollars of infrastructure spending one time for every human being on this planet to have all the water they need to drink from the atmosphere and never touch our groundwater again, powered only by the sun. The technologies that we need to help humanity have more people survive in the future, because some people will not, um, that's going to require not innovation, but implementation, right? So our 2.0 conversation is to say, wow, this is a really eye-opening 
way to pose a conversation. Well, if we bring people together around, is there enough food? Is there enough sustainability? And when we're all talking about sustainability, are we talking about sustainability of the planet? Which a lot of people use sustainability to talk about. They're using it the way that I would use it, which is sustainability of the human race, which also involves taking care of the planet. Again, consciousness is categorization, right? Which is a higher category of sustainability, humanity or the planet, if you had to choose one. For me, if it's the planet and not humanity, I think we're having a, a values conversation, not just a position conversation. And this is how we inadvertently set up tribes and wars within each other about things we mutually care about. Because like I have brethren and sisters in the Al Gore Climate Active Reality Program that I was trained in by Mr. Al Gore himself, amongst 2,000 people in the room, of course. Uh, but I've gone through that certification. And most of the people that I work with in that arena uh, are kind of inadvertently creating a war between those who defend the planet and those who don't. A war. Just because they don't pick up a gun doesn't mean it's not a war. Um, language can be a war. In fact, truth is also a casualty of war. So to so land my plane on this, <laughs> to land my plane on this, um, we uh, see the 2.0 conversation is people, you know, first discovering what this is in our conversation is. Um, and we have a commitment we offer to them that helps uh, communicate this to the world that I'll mention in a moment if you give me an opportunity to. But the 2.0 conversation is probably more important where people take the ambiguity of is there enough and point it to something specific like is there enough water, is there enough courage, is there enough sustainability? You're talking about water. And you know I can go out and I can turn the tap on and I can get water. But to get that water to my house took centuries laying pipes, different people learning to trade, you know, mother is the invention of all necessity. And for me to turn on the water, it has taken centuries. If we're trying to create what is enough, this, this the starting point is, as you say, is the questions, but will it take decades for it to be achieved? And some people, as you know, they, they say, right, we need to to, to solve the planet, we need to wipe out, you know, there's beliefs out there that they need to wipe out. We need to have less people on the planet, the depopulation conversation, you mean those folks? Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, we can. And then there's the other, the other part, which is, you know, you know, farming, wipe out farming. And then there's the other part of it as well is, you know, protect, protecting, protecting the planet that we live on. Now, before we get into that, there was, you know, I was sitting out with friends um, and I was talking to them about the planet and one of them says, things are screwed. You know, no one's going to do anything. And I was listening to this and he went, what do you mean? He says, it's too late. We've, we've destroyed it all. We might as well just enjoy ourselves and last to leave, switch out the lights. And that was their belief. And then someone else and the conversation. So remember, these were all drinking. I was sober. I, <laughs> I wish I would have been in that room. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, and then someone saying, you know, the globalists and the damage they're doing and the greed that they want to try and create. And then there's the control. Um, so it, it was interesting. So I was kind of going, hmm, these are people that I want to uh, share 
Daniel uh, Wisdom well, with? Uh, we have two really big things that just got mentioned there. One is the whole idea of population, actually three. The third is, you know, giving up and, you know, it's all doomed and we passed the point of no return thing. And the third is the globalist conversation. So let's just take these one at a time. And when I was doing research on this, I discovered that we had to invent. Huh? Let's book in another hour right now. On kids go to bed. Well, we could do it in two parts. You could break it up if you want. To know it, but no, no, but no, but, but um, first of all, the 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 whole um, aspect of we're screwed and we've gone past the point of no return. Um, we had to invent a word in theology as a category, again, back to consciousness categorization, called eschatology. I'd never heard the word before I started this research. And it's a body of thought across all religious disciplines, all grouped together that are about the end of the world. So I would look at that if I was an alien and I was looking at the human race, I would suggest that this race has a little bit of a love affair with the end of the world. There are some human psyches who are look at that as a form of glory. And then there are others who kind of given up and they're all sort of lumped in that. Um, I think that that's an interesting thing for people to look at in the first place. And I think one of the reasons why, whether we agree or on this side or that, and there are some that are on the other side legitimately that I've met, uh, for the most part, I think most human beings admire Zelensky, uh, particularly himself personally, because he was offered the chance to leave and he didn't leave. And that act of courage in the face of overwhelming odds that Russia was going to smash them created a ripple effect that got people to want to you know, make Ukraine succeed. You, you, that's objectively said already through the world, the word of uh, uh, through the view of history. Um, and we said earlier before there isn't enough courage, and courage requires demonstration in the face of doubt. Not when you don't have doubt. It's not if you act without any doubt. There's no courage involved, right? This is the time right now for people to understand that their personal action on this matters. If your conversation negatively matter uh, or positively it negatively matters, which it does, because you may talk about another part of the race that you think is subhuman and you never hurt anybody, but somebody heard you and they picked up a gun and shot that guy, your conversation contributes to that culture. So if we want to have a positive version of an outcome, we have to have a positive culture that's looking for the solutions against our adversity, not ourselves. We don't need to take down each other or take down our institutions because that's a waste of time. And one of the things we don't have is a lot of time. That's something we can agree on. The depopulation thing, I would put everyone on this listening to my voice to make a beeline for the Gapminder Institute and, or look at our website, the sources page of our website, where you see Hans Rosling talking about our whole invention of this myth of overpopulation was the biggest distraction of humanity. Um, and in fact, we may have a depopulation problem that is causing us some threat. Um, some people believe we can support way more than 10 billion people on this planet just with the technology we know of right now. And believe me, you may not think that this matters to you, but people who believe in depopulation give credence to people who actually want to do something evil to accomplish that. We have enough, not only for 8 billion people, we have enough for more than 10 billion people. Yeah, but because there's more people turning 60 than there are 20. So even in Europe, there is a, you know, look at Germany at the moment or look what the future of Germany is. The They're going to have real issue trying to fill that work 
staff because of the population is reducing right across Europe. So that's the, yeah, I would agree on that. And, you know, I think everyone, there is people that are hoping that, that there is an end of the world. And if you think about through generations and through centuries, that has always been the way you're correct on that. What's your thoughts? And the next one is globalists. So I'm talking about a world game and the world working for 100% of humanity. So I am the target of people who are not happy with my conversation because I'm putting out something that's pretty feasible and hopeful for the world to be able to work together, but not by a world government, but by humanity recognizing that there is something called humanity irrespective of what nation you live in. And this has been a conversation going on for more than 100 years and is central to the world Second World War. And the Second World War never ended because we just migrated into a Cold War. And we never figured out after the Cold War to create an effective peace, which is why we have Ukraine. These things are related. Well, it goes back, it goes back further. If you look at even before World War One, you know, Ferdinand was only just an excuse to kick it off that that whole area was a boiling pot before then and still we see this happening in that area now so this is a continuation war is far more the natural state for humanity up to this point in human history and i believe this is a responsibility of each of us living today to recognize that even the most peaceful aspiring person walking on this planet is a warrior you and me included because we come from seventy thousand years of it so i like to look about self-behavior self-awareness all the stuff we were talking about with our no last week is in what way am i a warrior even though i'm out there declaring peace and to be clear we haven't mentioned it on this conversation but your listeners will discover that we're actually releasing a treaty of humanity to this point right a treaty of humans not nations to be clear um, but the thing that people need to understand is everything about the global order that you fear today is about fear. The creation of the global order post-World War II was coming out of fascism to create freedom. Now, we can talk about all of the hypocrisies of all the sides that were basically in a Cold War and making either compromises or outright betrayals of the values of their nation, even the laws of their nation in pursuing their war ends. But the liberal world order wasn't liberal or conservative. It was to liberate, right? And it was, if you are conservative, you approach that in a conservative manner to make sure we're not doing it too quick. We're not losing traditions. We're following adherence to our constitutions and so on and so forth, rule of law. We're liberals we're more prepared to, you know, progress, you know, beyond the precedents and try to set new ones. And it was a balance between those two aspects, but of a common goal, which is to help humanity be free. That's what that was about. And, and what we have today, all the conspiracy theories you're holding right now, if you're holding any of them, they all hold to a group of power brokers that are coming in to control you. And, and our focus is not on any of those power structures, but just look at how human beings can live in Indiana and work with people in Ukraine and another group of people in China and create a whole global company with basically no, no barriers whatsoever. There is a global connectedness that's available to the average individual that was not available to us 10 or 20 years ago. And we have a responsibility to use that 
to hold these governments accountable. I'm talking about a world game, not a world order in that sense. And if you need any more proof than this, just know that in order for Putin to annex the parts of uh, Ukraine that he wants to annex, he's first having to rush having a vote with the people in that southern part of Ukraine, but he's doing it all like in three days and they're visiting, you know, actual homes with with uh, soldiers telling them they have to vote. So it's obviously suspect. But the point is, is if it is suspect and it's not a real vote and there's force and intimidation involved, why does Putin even think that he has to have the ability to show support within that region? Because the power of the people is far more powerful than the people in the supposed power. The real wake up that human beings need to have around the world is that the people are the power, not the people in power. You know, we can talk about being sovereign and people believing, you know, natural law instead of legal law. And people can go, well, look, I'm I'm living in my own dwelling. I'm protecting my own. But when someone comes along with a gun, look at Stalin, look at, you know, Mao, look at Pol, Pol Pot. No matter what your belief are, that a small amount of people can can control control a country and get everyone to do what they need to do that's a system and that's people feeding into a system and the system is to get people to love and follow the system and take them away from the communities that they originally had learned that their ancestors as you said their ancestors had embodied and grown and and loved and cherished and educated that this is all trying to go on we'll bring you in to this one medium of control so if i think there's a shift in the world i hope god there's a shift in the world for the better you know i'm not a fan of uh, klaus schwab and the great reset and all i'm not i i think they're going the wrong direction and um, even though i have wrote a letter to all of our tds and asked them certain list of questions and none of them have responded to us people me you my neighbors want to laugh and joy and break bread and have fun and not worry about the the world because certain people want to have such an influence that they want to crush it joe soap in the street just wants to get on with it i think you're i think you're spot on and i think that the accessibility of this conversation isn't just about the big global things we're talking about it's just daily life like Whatever profession you are, whatever artistic pursuit you have, if you're better agreement tomorrow than you are today, you're likely to have more agency to get more done and more results of what you're trying to create. This is not selling this as a personal development path. And yet at the same time, there are people who participate in our conversation and they do a little project we have called the Agreement Academy just to better themselves at the art of agreement, let's say. Are you going for the ripple effect? Yeah, Daniel. that's correct. And, and I think the, the one thing that you made, and we're all looking at the right conversation to produce this understanding, Joe, right? So we're saying things that are similar in different ways. But those few people that could take the power because of the system that you said that corrupted it, it was the people who took power. And, and, and of course, it was the people who, who got together and made slavery 
was an agreement, right? Slavery was an agreement. So agreement is like fire. It can heat your house or burn it down, right? And what I'm simply saying is, is that agreement is something that every human being listening to my voice has actual agency on. They don't need anybody's permission to become better at agreement by some method. It could be ours. It could be, like I said, bobbing for apples or hula hoops. I don't really care. You know, but whatever it is that allows us to smother our tendency to conflict, which is partly by seeing the other that's controlling me and therefore I have no power because those guys stole the power. When we get together and create more coalition and agreement, we have far more power, power and influence than what we have now. I, I brought my uh, brought this conversation to the fore by talking uh, from an economic standpoint that wealth is not produced by resources, it's produced by agreement. I could say the same thing about power. Power is produced by agreement, not by taking it from the other guy only. That's not the only way to have power is my point. I'm just going to jump back and you spoke about fear. People are controlled out of fear. And the fear that they're controlled is that they are feared they're going to lose their life. Now, for me, on my deathbed, I will be happy sit on my deathbed with my little packed lunch and I go and I'm dying. I go, see you later because I'm going to find out <laughs> is this all through a good time. So I have no fear of death. Okay. So, you know, you're talking about fear, but then we're talking about power struggle. Saying to not struggle about power, to just exercise power instead of struggling about it but then then you it's a re-education where it's about desire and lust and you know greed and talking we can then go into the archons and the egregore energies that that create all this and that's another day story but so what i'm trying to get at is it sounds wonderful absolutely brilliant and i'm with you 100 but is that all it is is it, it is it a case of actually changing things to a level that it actually will make a difference? Or is it just a pipe dream for you and me, Daniel? You know, when uh, when we first started having this conversation, people would ask us something quite similar. Is this all there is? It's just asking this question, what can I do with this, basically? And what we ended up doing was creating various kinds of experiences people can have to master this. So we have a 10-hour program it comes with a certificate. We call it the Agreement Academy. It helps our social research. We have a survey on our website where you can go through this conversation slide by slide as to our case to humanity as to why we really need a treaty of humanity and how you can actually propel that happening because it happens incrementally by people adopting it. Um, we have a game we're developing where we're bringing people together who we already know have very little chance of agreement and see if they can mine agreement from it. Um, and then as social impact investors, which is a whole other side of our business and pretty close to where you are, it's based out of the Isle of Man, is an impact venture studio. And our focus on the question of what are we going to do about it is the one I mentioned earlier in this uh, session, which was talking about how do we find three and a half trillion dollars to invest in the future of humanity. And that number is associated with the 17 sustainable development goals. And we've come up with a program for that. And it's pretty ambitious. Everyone who's ever seen it loves it uh, and also highly doubts we can pull it off <laughs> because it's so grand and so large in scope. And um, our focus is, is that 
the more we pursue the conversation of agreement with Zernath, build up some influence in the world, some, some you know, pretty interesting people coming to the fore wanting to talk to us, it's allowing us to build coalition agreement towards that. And I'm talking about nations, private interests, um, a small program of the United Nations, who are all interested in what we're doing by virtue of the conversations that we've had. And the point for everybody in in your audience listening is this is one byproduct for us of what we ended up doing in responding to this question of is there enough? Other people have come to our conversation and are applying it different ways. And so if you're a leader or somebody with a creative voice or something that you think deserves more attention, you can come in and adopt our platform of is there enough and apply it to your own hashtag. So if you care about healthcare issues, you could say, is there enough health? Or if you think it's inequality, is there enough equality? Let's say things like that, justice, whatever you want to focus on. And we'll provide some resources to support that uh, because we'd like that conversation developing within um, our community and a campaign. And ultimately, what we're going to do with that in the audience that we develop is launch um, a full-scale media operation that which we pretty much already laid the groundwork for, that's just focusing on where can collaboration and agreement take place. So if we get a game of hula hoops or bobbing for apples, Joe, that can actually further something about collaboration, you might see that on our television network. You have everyone getting their certificate, the, the amount of people that you need. So is this then a movement? And if this is a movement of people then in a big community creating conversations in those communities are we are you we are, are you hoping then that those communities of part of this movement will have influence within their own country to make a change the answer to that is yes as a matter of fact there is an organized effort going on for us to go to eastern europe for several months to, to conduct the conversations in real life of is there enough um, to a particular country that's having some interesting political divides and the people that are excited about what we're doing think that we might be able to have an effect on that. Um, and uh, the, the point is our research suggests that engaging in this conversation has some cultural ripple effects that make more agreement and less conflict. So that's what we'd like people to do with it. There's no like the treaty, which we want to be signed by 100 million people over the next five years, since we haven't said that number while we're talking, 100 million certificates and a, a number with an NFT and a whole pizzazz thing associated with it. What we want is the people having the conversation to create more conversation around this and simply recognize that this one paragraph constitution we put together is not the be all and end all. It's the lowest common denominator agreement that we thought we could make for humanity to agree on, which is a, basically an agreement to agree wherever possible, like a best efforts guarantee. If we can get that started, then people will take that in other sorts of directions. It's not like we have another set of principles here and we want you to sign up for this there. And I mean, maybe one day we'll be a little more sophisticated like that, but that's not our intent. Our intent is just to create a, a ripple effect of this conversation and see how people use it. Well, it's evolving and, you know, those questions then can stimulate people. So you never know that in the next decade when, you and me are retired, you know, uh, that someone else might take it a different direction as well. You never know. Very happy to see that. As long as it ends up with people having more choice 
than they have now. I think that if you define standard of living beyond mere survival, I think you can quantify it as how much choice you have, <laughs> right? So anything you can do to create more choice creates more wealth. And so this is really what Is There Enough does is every time somebody has a conversation, they're literally producing wealth in the world. It may not be monetized in the form of cash this second, but it creates a ripple effect of more wealth. So say consciousness creates matter. There you go. Tell me, Daniel, if someone wants to look more into this, unfortunately, we run way out of time. So if someone wants to have this conversation with you, what are you tapping into? Istthereenough.org. Istthereenough.org is a doorway into our thinking, our focus. It taps into like four other websites that are connected to that one, including a forthcoming book called The First Agreement. Um, it, uh, refers to our for-profit impact launch pad. Um, for those who are token interested, there's a lot of tokenization involved with what we're doing that they can discover that the token that we'll release one day is called the hundred percent token, uh, as you would imagine. And, uh, so people who want to kind of dig into that doorway can start at istthereenough.org. And, and if you find the hundred percent token website on there, which you will in the menu, um, you'll have a lot of fun to to go through there. But I, I really encourage people to check out our survey and our clubhouse for participating in this conversation. Those two make very clear what we're all about and how you can yeah, participate. Well, clubhouse, I'm not on. And I made the decision myself not to go on it. Um, just another platform for me. I've, I've got the radio. Yeah, you can you can listen. You can listen to our recordings on clubhouse without being a part of clubhouse. And if you follow our YouTube channel, uh, we actually, uh, starting next week, we'll be restreaming those on YouTube. Um, so you don't have to be part of Clubhouse to participate in those in that sense. Daniel, 30 seconds. What would be the single most piece of wonderful, wonderful advice that you'd like to share with the audience? 30 seconds. You must be definite on your aim and uncompromising on that aim, that objective. And as flexible as you can be on how to get there. Daniel, thanks for coming on to Dublin South FM. It's been a pleasure. What if you could have a sustainable business without the liquidity concerns and make your company more profitable? Curious? Check out our tried and tested proven client acquisition formula. Go to www.joedalton.ie and book your free consultation now.